Thank you, Tim. Good morning, church. It's a joy to see you all here today. It's good to see our visiting folks with us, and whether you are visiting for the first time or if you've been regularly visiting, we, we certainly want to welcome you. And just as a reminder, we are today going to continue a study that we started a few several weeks ago looking at the book of Romans. So I encourage you to take your Bible, if you have them with you, and turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Tim and Richard both have done a wonderful job in leading us to an understanding of uh, the faith that we are saved through by God's grace. And as we see in the first verse of chapter 1, that the message that we've received here from Paul is a message that he received by uh, God's grace as an apostle. So we understand that what Paul was writing here is authoritative. Uh, one of the things that was said about Martin Luther at the end of his life uh, some centuries ago was that he would that each church member would come to church expecting and understanding that when they go to church that they actually will be able to hear from the one true God. And hopefully that is your anticipation today, that you're not here to listen uh, to singing or to pray or to even observe Lord's Supper as much as you are here, not to hear me preach, but hear the word of God proclaimed, understanding that it is the word of life and that understanding that the gospel that Paul is speaking about here in the book of Romans is not only relevant to us, but it is essential for us. So let's ask God for help as we go into this time of study. Our gracious God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit that not only has inspired it and preserved it, but also is the one who teaches us today. So Father, we come to you humbly, acknowledging that we need your help. We do need you to open our eyes. We need you to open our ears. We need you to help us obey and believe. So Father, we ask that desperately, understanding that the, the cost is too great if we fail to do so. And I pray, Lord, that should there be an unbelieving heart here, that as this is the day of believing, that this would be the day that they would believe in your word. Uh, that while it is called today, that they would believe. We ask these things in the name of our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to begin our reading in chapter 1 in verse 16. We'll focus our attention in the message today in verses 18 to 23, uh, but we'll read 16 through the rest of the chapter. So follow along as I read. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see it fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Thankfully today we've had the reminder through the Lord's Supper of what Jesus Christ accomplished on our behalf at the command of God the Father so that what I just read is not completely dismal and hopeless. I was joking with Tim and Richard that as we were plotting through the weeks of who would preach what text that they get the, the just shall live by faith. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God and the salvation to all who believe. And I get the wrath of God. <laughs> However, while I may say that in jest, the gospel of God would not be as sweet, it would not be as powerful. It would not be as relevant if it were not for what we know about the wrath of God. We read, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for the power of God, for salvation to everyone who believes. Do we really need that gospel? What's so important about the righteousness of God that, that's revealed from faith, for faith? Can't we just make it without it, with, on our own? Can, aren't, isn't there enough good in us to, to somehow make it? Or, uh, to, I mean, everything's not bad. Or mostly bad, but not all bad. Right? Do we really need this? When we read this passage of Scripture, we come up with no other answer, but absolutely, we do. We need this gospel. And there's a few reasons. And Pastor Charlie, I'm so sorry that I got so overwhelmed. If I could get you to pass these out. Hopefully this will help you follow. Hopefully this will help me stay in my lane. But as they're passing this out, let me just go ahead and continue with 
there's at least three reasons I see and we'll look at today as why we need this gospel. Number one is we have no righteousness. That is, we're deathly sick. And the fact that we have no righteousness indicates that our own behavior betrays us. We may think that there's some good within us. We may look at others and say, well, they're not all bad, or, or this is a good person. But what we just read indicates that we have no righteousness. Therefore, we understand that our behavior betrays us. Even our own behavior sells us out. If we look at ourselves honestly, and we look at each other honestly, we understand we have no righteousness. We're doomed. And it certainly doesn't help in the world in which we live to let people self-diagnose themselves. You know, the ones who say, well, I'm not perfect, but I'm not all bad. Or, I'm not a complete stranger. I'm, I'm not the worst sinner. Or even to the point where, you know, I was just born this way. What do you expect? This is the house I was raised in, or this is the environment that I grew up in, or this is where I went to school, or this is where I had to work. You see, when we start self-diagnosing ourselves, we only complicate the matter because our behavior is going to betray us. Even just a few weeks ago when I was uh, experienced some uh, discomfort from the shingles that I had. Richard's not here. He'd be proud to know that while I'm resistant to go to the doctor's office, Thankfully, I have this app on my phone that I can actually get a doctor to talk face-to-face -face and they were able to diagnose my situation. Even though I thought I had an idea of what was wrong or even though I may have resisted what I was hoping was not the problem, I needed someone else to make a determination for me. Now, when we think about we have no righteousness, this is no excuse for us to reject those who are not righteous for we are all in that group. We can't go pointing our fingers and saying, well, we're the saved ones and they're the sinners and somehow keep them at a distance until they become like us. However, we don't want to condone the continuation in their sin either. While Jesus may have been a comfort and a help and protection for the prostitute that the Pharisees brought to him, remember his words to her as she departed, sin no more. It wasn't as if he wanted her to feel comfortable in her situation. It wasn't as if he wanted her to feel at ease and, and it, with no consequences to what she was living out in her life. But he loved her enough to give her the truth. I don't think it was that Jesus attracted sinners to himself because of an attitude like that while he was teaching about sin. I think it was because in the midst of their sinfulness, there was somebody that loved them enough to give them the truth that was changing their lives and that was setting their souls free and liberating them to live a life that God intended for them to live. But we need this gospel absolutely because we have no righteousness. Another reason is because there are false gospels out there. There are those who would simply want to eradicate ignorance to a higher consciousness. There are those who would promote a liberation, whether it be some physical form or whether it be an emotional form of liberation, that they just simply say, God is a way in which you can escape. 
Replacing the gospel with a gospel that's with a different God. A God that's too good to punish anyone. The more we look at it, God is, God is a God of love and he, he would never, ever treat anybody harshly. That's a false gospel. You see, we need the true gospel to address the real issues. That's the reason why we need this gospel. That's why we need the gospel of God. That's why we need the gospel that tells us that Jesus Christ, who is perfect and sinless, lived a life that we could never live. So that he could exchange that for our sinfulness and down a cross. And when we place our faith in his completed work on the cross, we have the forgiveness of sin. We can stand before God, a holy, righteous Father, with no fear. Because we stand before him as if we were Christ. Because he has done that for us. That's the gospel that we need. We don't need a gospel that erases the wrath of God. We need a gospel that deals with the wrath of God. Which leads to the third point, that the wrath of God is real. We need to understand that the wrath of God demonstrates not so much God's harshness, but God's goodness. You see, we need a God who is so righteous and pure and perfect and holy that when he sees sin, when he sees evil, he hates it. We don't talk too much about a God that hates, but we have a God that does. And he hates sin. And because he hates sin, he deals with sin. And that's where the wrath of God is real. Perhaps that's not what you um, expected to be the introduction to Paul's gospel here. And perhaps that's, that's not where you start when it comes to evangelism. Perhaps we start on the other end and we want to make sure that people that we are evangelizing, they know that God is love. Right? That's easier. That's positive. It's, it's true. But Paul, when he speaks about this gospel that he's not ashamed of, begins talking about the God of wrath. Because it's real. Wrath is simply just, uh, from a, a, diction, a definition form, it's just a passionate anger. It's indignation. It's punishment. When used, the word when it's used in a, in a human sense, it's talking about Vengeance. And the reason why so many, even within Christianity, are hesitant to talk about the wrath of God is because they confuse the wrath of men with the wrath of God. You see, we get mad when somebody inconveniences our life, whether it be at a fast food restaurant or whether it be on the highway or whether it be at work or in our homes. We, we, we get Offended really easily because somebody's just made my life uncomfortable and so therefore I want to respond in passionate anger. Well, that's sinful. However, when God does so, he's doing it out of a holiness and a purity that we can't imagine in and of ourselves. And it's just when he acts such because of his nature. And just as righteousness by faith is both present and future... Again, when we think about the gospel that Paul's not ashamed of and that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, that is both in a present sense in which my faith, 
makes me righteous before God. It gives me forgiveness, but also has an anticipation for what it will provide for me in glory. The same thing is with God's wrath. That there are certain situations in which God's wrath is dealt with right now. But there is coming a day of wrath in the future that will be overwhelming to all. So as we think about these reasons why we need the gospel, let's look at the text that we have. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The term there, being revealed in the Greek language, it conveys something that the English doesn't. And so while I don't want to give you a Greek lesson today, I do want at least kind of focus on what this verb is saying. It's not saying so much that the wrath of God is being revealed like right when I say it, but it has a continuation to it. It's an imperfect tense. In other words, the action is never completed. So that when we say that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, it really should be the wrath of God is continually being revealed from heaven. While there is one day coming for the wrath of God to, to judge the world for its sinfulness, the wrath of God is continually being revealed even today in the world in which we live. Now, what is it being revealed against? Now, we understand it's being revealed from heaven, but what against? Well, the two things. First of all, ungodliness. Ungodliness is simply a lack of reverence towards God. That is, it's a failure to acknowledge or ignoring his existence or ignoring his attributes. It's a failure to recognize that there is a God. When you think of atheism, when you think of those who don't believe in God, it's not because there isn't one, it's just they've chosen not to acknowledge one. But there's a second, unrighteousness. Now, we talked a lot about righteousness through verse 17, about the righteousness of God being revealed for faith, from faith. But here he's talking about the lack of that. This is immorality. This is injustice that we, we don't treat others as we ought to treat them. It's basically a, a summary of the greatest commandments. When they asked Jesus, what are the greatest commandments? First of all, he said, you should love the Lord your God, and then you should love your neighbor. So the sins that God's wrath is going to be revealed upon continually is going to be the sin of not acknowledging God and recognizing him and appreciating for who he is, as well as how you treat one another. So, this wrath being revealed against the ungodliness and righteousness of men, these men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They're suppressing the truth based on the rest of the context of this passage gives us the answer to that they're suppressing the truth about God. Now, let's not get confused in thinking that somehow man is able to actually suppress the truth about God. But he's attempting continually through his unrighteousness. When we sin, we're suppressing the truth about God. 
We're, we're suppressing the truth. We're, we're denying the fact or, or we're holding at bay the truth that there is a sovereign God who has laws and standards by which we should live by, who's going to hold us accountable one day. When we do what we want to do, we're suppressing that. We're living as atheists when we sin. Because we're rejecting that not only is there a God that we're accountable to, but that he is giving us rules and, and guidelines and laws by which we should live. And in order to suppress the truth, it's something that we must have had hold of or possessed because as we're told here in verse 19, God showed it to him. Verse 19 says, for what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. The knowledge of God is not sufficient for salvation. Let's make that really clear because some people... Uh, want to confuse the fact, well, I, I know that there's a God, so therefore, how, how can I be all bad? You, you can't say that I've rejected him if I believe that he's there. But that's not sufficient. However, the rejection and suppression of that truth about God is sufficient for condemnation. The act of ungodliness is a rejection of God. It is the ultimate demonstration of pride and arrogance. We displace God from his rightful place and we sit ourselves upon the throne of our universe. But we know that there's a God because he showed it to us. Now how has he done so? How has those things which he, that Paul clearly says are invisible, these invisible attributes, namely the eternal power and divine nature, how have we seen those? Well, he says it's been clearly perceived ever since the creation. It's no accident that the most, uh, when we think about this, the, the creation itself, God has given us all that we need to know that he's there. Now, it's no accident that the most recent occurrence, of, at least in the Western world of this taking place, started centuries ago. Not long after the Reformation came along and gave liberty and freedom to those who were within the church, the ability to, to understand who God was and to be able to understand the scriptures because people were explaining it to them in language that they could eventually read, that as it often does in the course of the history of mankind enables us to enjoy that liberty in other ways. And it wasn't long after the Reformation that we have the Renaissance period. The Reformation was the period in which we started focusing our attention upon the sovereign God that, who has created us and sustains our life. Not long after that came the Renaissance period where we started to think that, man, we're pretty good. We've got a pretty good handle on stuff. Man, man is not bad. Look at, look at all the artistic uh, fervor that we can show forth in whether it be statues or paintings or music or writing. Look at the way in which we can start writing out forms of government and we can start you know, looking at the past and seeing what's good and, we, and our reasoning ability is helping us advance our life so much in technology. And before you know it, we're starting to build things and, and, and the industrial age starts and we start to become really dependent upon ourselves. Unless you think that I have anything against fine arts or technology or industry, just come to my house. I'll make it really clear that I'm a 
that I have become dependent in many ways on those very things. However, when I get to the point where I start eliminating God because of all the things that I enjoy, I see myself in the mirror of Romans chapter 1. Now, we see, now, when I say that, the thing that has affected the world in which we live in as much as I think anything has is the fact that through all of that progression of the elevation of man and the removal of God came what we know to be evolutionary thinking. When we start getting rid of God, we start having to explain how everything got here. We have to start explaining how everything happened and why there is a design somehow in there. And, and let's face it, when you don't have a God, you can come up with anything. As a matter of fact, that's what most scientists today are believing, just about anything. But it's not truth. They have suppressed that truth about God in such a way where evolutionary thinking is the prime example. You say, well, okay, Mark, you're just getting off on your you know, soapbox because you're a creationist and you believe in you know, six days of creation, literal days and all that kind of stuff, and you're just kind of pushing your agenda. No, I'm not. Paul is. Because Paul said, ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, people are without excuse to know that there's a God. Now, God could have shown his power, his eternal power and his divine nature in a number of different ways. He has. And Paul could have mentioned, like, delivering his people from the nation of Egypt. That's pretty powerful. That reflected his divine nature. He could have looked at the ways in which many nations were defeated because the Ark of the Covenant was uh, accompanying the, the nation of Israel as they were fighting their enemies. Uh, he could have looked at King David uh, before he was king and he just used a stone to, to knock out Goliath. He could have used that as an example of power, but he didn't. He goes all the way back to creation and says, this is what leaves you without excuse because there is no one who has not lived since creation. There is not no one, therefore, without excuse because of that. Now, what God has shown his power in various ways, creation has always been around. During this time of year, which just happens to be my favorite, not just because baseball season is about to start, or if you live in Japan, it already has two games, but that's the Japanese pastime, the American pastime starts this week. But that's not the only reason why I enjoy springtime. I enjoy springtime because it reminds us about life. The incredible design that just somehow came about. It amazes me that people with many letters after their name can develop and produce a, a, a video presentation of the universe or the deep seas or the landscape around the world and still try to tell me this started hundreds of millions of years ago. And still think there's any sort of design to it without any meaning to it. We see the complexity. We see the simplicity. There's not a microscope. There's not a telescope that can explain it beyond a creator. We see his nature in the giving and sustaining and the purpose of all the things that we enjoy in this world. 
And it takes a great deal of effort to suppress these facts. It takes a great deal of effort for a man to reject this clear presentation of the eternal power and divine nature of God. And just think about all the things that we're going to see come about that, that aren't there. There's trees in my yard that have nothing but wood coming out from the trunk. But guess what? I'm expecting in just a few weeks be some green things that weren't there before. They're all of a sudden going to be there. And hopefully there's going to be some cherries on that same tree that weren't there before the green things got there. Not because I like them, but because Amy does. But even then, it's, it's, it's going to produce life. And where did it come from? By chance? <laughs> it blows my mind to think there's so much evidence leaving people with no excuse. But you know what happens? We don't want God. We don't want God. So we will believe anything. I mean, literally, we will believe anything to keep us from being held accountable to a righteous, holy, good God. And this willful act on behalf of mankind results as a perilous spiral into depravity. Verse 21 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and the birds and animals and creeping things. We need to understand that human sin is deliberate and it results in degeneration. Not giving glory, that is, not giving him the weightiness of who he is. But not recognizing who he is. Not giving glory to God and not thanking him. Leads to two things here that Paul points out. First of all, pointless speculations. Here he says, they became futile in their thinking. They became vain in their imaginations, as King James puts it. And if you look at what much of science is today. Now again, I'm, I'm not, I didn't study any particular science specifically when I was in school other than the classes I had to attend. But what most scientists, particularly in the secular world, will propose today are vain, empty imaginations. They have to construct the support upon which they're arguing and then they have to create support for that support and they have to keep on going back and their answer is well if we can just go back long enough where nobody can remember and nobody was around then nobody can argue with us the only problem with this is we have an eternal God who has been there all the time and he has given us all that we need but when we fail to give him glory when we fail to thank him for what he has done that's what happens we become vain we become empty in our imaginations not only that we become darkened in our hearts there's three aspects of that. First of all, there's, there's mental dullness. When our hearts are darkened, our, our, our mental faculties become dull. That doesn't mean that it can't be sharp. When you think of some of the greatest atheists in the world, it doesn't mean that they couldn't think through things, but they were obviously thinking off track. 
But there's a mental dullness that comes in with a dark heart. There's also emotional despair. The world in which we live, and I don't say this judgmentally, I just say this empathetically. We live in a world in which there are so many who are just in despair. Now, I'm not saying it's legitimate. I'm not saying that it's all logical or good. I'm just saying there are so many people that are living their life in despair without any hope. Well, when you get rid of God who created you and gave you a design and a purpose, then you have nothing left. You have no hope. But there's also spiritual depravity. You can read and read and read and study and listen and study some more and listen some more and take notes and, and, and you can try to give yourself to the scriptures all you want to. But if you have not given glory to God and if you've not thanked him, then spiritually you're just depraved. You can't understand it. Paul makes that very clear in 1 Corinthians that those who are spiritually dead can't understand the things that are spiritually given. And when we don't give God the glory, when we don't give thanks to God, it leads to not just pointless speculations, but to a dark heart where we're dull mentally, we're despair emotionally, and we're depraved spiritually. And our self-assessment doesn't change the truth. In fact, it brings attention to it. When we start trying to give excuses for the reasons why we are, apart from the fact that we have rejected God, it only proves that we're just stacking idol upon idol upon idol. Look what happens here in verse 22. Claiming to be wise. In other words, we've, we've studied one another. We've made an intense study. We've surveyed other people. We can kind of figure out why everybody is the way they are. They became fools. Foolish. Stokes. Mistake that the psalmist says the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And not only they became fools, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God, this eternal, powerful, great God who has created everything in the universe and they exchanged it. What did they exchange it for? They exchanged it for the very thing that He made. If you can think back in your life and oftentimes if you talk to an older man, you can ask him, how many of your old cars do you wish you still had? <laughs> a, few of, a couple of us went over to the car show just a few weeks ago where most of the cars were older than me. Um, and you walk around and you can point at that and you can hear people say, or maybe you've talked to people like that, and you said, yeah, I used to have one of those. I wish I still had mine. Now, ladies, there might be something you can relate to, but I have no idea what that is, so uh, you'll just have to forgive me. But to some of us, there are things in which you've exchanged for something else. And only in hindsight do you look back and say, oh, man. Forgetting the fact that you were probably in a very desperate situation when you did exchange it for something, and you lost your mind as to what the true value of it was, or what it could be, you did something in the present to meet your immediate need, right? It's no different with God. You see, God, in His commandments, you study them. You look at His laws. You look at His statutes. 
Essentially, everything that God tells us to do requires us to wait. Hence, the just shall live by faith. We don't like to wait. We want to know who we're going to marry today. We need to get married today, or we need to get school over today. We need to, to get our job over today. We need to get on vacation today. We need to, to do, do whatever. We need to do it right now. All the pleasures that God has created and in giving you a desire for, we need to have them satisfied right now. We can't wait for marriage. We can't wait until I have a job. I can't wait until I have the money to pay for it. Right? Same thing with God. God calls us to a life of holiness. It allows us to live a life of separation from the things that the world feeds on, the things that our heart naturally craves for. He says, wait. Wait. But instead we say, you know what, God? It's great for Sunday morning. Sunday afternoon, I've got some other things that are more important than you. I've got a life that I need to pursue. I've got things that I've got to get. I, 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 I want to be things that I'm not yet right now. I've got to start working on those things. I don't have time to wait. So I'll exchange. So we don't give God the glory. We don't wait on Him as, as if He was in charge. We don't give Him thanks for all that He has provided for us. And we exchange it for all the things that He has created. Things that He created for us. And he doesn't need to look at a tree and see fruit come off of it. He doesn't need to eat anything off of it. He doesn't need a garden. He doesn't need shelter. He doesn't need the beauty that we see in nature. He's given it to us, but we would take what he's given us and say, okay, thanks God, we're good. Psalm 115 puts it this way in verse 4. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they don't speak. Eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses, but they don't smell. They have hands, but they don't feel. Feet, but they don't walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. You say, well, Mark, I haven't, I haven't crafted any kind of structure that looks like a man with a mouth or eyes or ears or nose or hands or feet. But you've created something. Your life's revolving around something if it's not God. And even though they don't respond to us, even though the things that we have, well, I guess your cell phone does to a certain extent if you're talking to a voice that's been programmed to talk to you. But all of these things that we allow to capture our hearts and our attention and we exchange it, we just simply become like they are, lifeless lifeless. Isaiah 40 goes on with a greater description of that that we'll just make reference to. But what Paul gives us here reminds us that man's condition before God is worthy of his wrath. In our foolish thinking and dark emotions, we may deny it, but we are worthy of his wrath. But lest you think that this is some sort of Dismal, gloomy, no hope sort of message. Not only remember the songs that we sang this morning of biblical truth, but hear from John chapter 3. 
And I'm not going to read the most familiar verse of chapter 3, which all of you in this room could probably recite John 3.16. But let me read John 3.18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Verse 36 goes on to say, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. It doesn't say the wrath of God is coming on him. It says the wrath of God remains on him. That's the gospel. The gospel is honest with who we are. And the gospel is necessary because we have no righteousness. We are condemned already. We need the gospel. We need it because there's other messages out there that make us think that we could find life somewhere else. And we need the gospel because the wrath of God is real. And if we don't believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, if we do not believe in His work that was accomplished upon the cross on our behalf, if we don't believe that God has poured His wrath that should have been on us on Christ so that we might have life, the wrath of God remains on us. I ask you today, does the convicting power of the Holy Spirit tell you, confirm for you, that the wrath of God rests on you? Does the Holy Spirit today convict you and confirm in your heart that while you're a believer, you're living as an atheist? You're living as if you've still exchanged the truth about God and suppressed it. Or do when you hear a message like this, you give glory to God and you thank Him that he didn't, he didn't remove the wrath, but he dealt with it in full on my behalf. And because of that, I have life. Whatever the Word of God is speaking to your heart, I pray that you will act and that you will look to God for life.